Senator Wyden this morning compared the pushback on uh, NSA surveillance to the SOPA and PIPA debate. I think one thing these have in common is that you have a lot of hearings and public debates happening with a lot of lawyers in suits sort of on TV and um, techies sitting with their, their Android phones looking at the stream going, oh, dear God, why don't, you know, why don't they have one network administrator up there uh, to, to clear up some of the confusion? Uh, very often, uh, I mean, so increasingly as we talk about sophisticated electronic surveillance, uh, understanding what's going on and what the significance of it is and even how it interacts with the law depends on uh, understanding the technology and certainly uh, anything you might do to try and shield your communications from surveillance, uh, either as an ordinary person or a journalist, uh, requires uh, some understanding of technology. Um, we heard as the call records program was revealed, a lot of uh, members of intelligence committees saying, oh, don't worry, it's just metadata. Um, and all the sort of techies watching this snickered because the only time you'll ever hear uh, a technologist say just metadata is when they're leaving a Star Trek convention because uh, they understand that it's never just metadata. It's often the most sensitive part of the communication, the most revealing. Um, we also know again about the internet metadata program that apparently was discontinued in 2011. Um, you hear a lot of sort of automatic comparisons to Smith v. Maryland. Um, but if you understand sort of where metadata resides, um, you know that, for example, if you're trying to pull stuff off the backbone, um, off the pipe itself, well, the metadata from an email let's say, isn't actually normally metadata that the internet provider has any record of. So whether Smith versus Maryland applies to that situation is really pretty unclear. Um, and it's not clear that that's a point the judges, uh, certainly lawyers evaluating it, uh, you know, have the background to even know should be raised. Um, so I'm really pleased to have here uh, a fantastic panel of technologists. Uh, David Dahl, who's the director of the uh, awesome sounding Krypton uh, project at Spider Oak, which is basically a kind of encrypted version of Dropbox, a former uh, engineer and developer at Mozilla. Um, we have Chris Segoyan, uh, who's uh, also a friend and, and who is uh, a principal technologist and uh, senior policy analyst at the ACLU. Um, also, as a friend, one of the few people I know who I would describe as a total ninja. Um, you should look at his uh, wired profile from a little while back to learn about his many escapades. Uh, Jim Burroughs is the VP for engineering at Silent Circle, which is a an encrypted communications uh, program. I have it on my phone right now to make encrypted phone calls. Uh, Karen Riley, development director at Tor, which is probably the best known uh, anonymity and privacy software widely used by uh, dissidents, and anyone who wants to protect their privacy, uh, a software that we now know the NSA has been trying very hard to understand, um, which again, if you check your NSA glossary, um, is NSA ease for break. Um, and uh, Matt Blaze, who is uh, a, uh, uh, cryptography expert and professor of computer science at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. So uh, instead of doing the sort of standard open remarks thing, I, I just want to think dive in and, and start throwing out questions. So I'll, I guess I'll just begin in saying if anyone here was, as a technologist, as someone working on developing secure communications, surprised by some of the revelations coming out. I know, um, for example, the public focus has been on the call records program. From a technologist's perspective, it's the news about NSA trying to dilute encryption standards that was uh, the most shocking. So I'm curious, just sort of polling the panel to see what they found shocking, surprising, or unsurprising. Well, which way are we going? Let's go for it. Jump okay. in. Okay, I guess we're going from my end. All right. Um, so I guess the thing that I found most uh, 
either surprising or unsurprising, I'm not sure which, but most um, relevant from a technological point of view is just how surprisingly few of the revelations relate directly to cryptography and cryptanalysis, which is what we've always thought of as the NSA's core uh, mission. We think of, you know, great insights into things like the Enigma system that, you know, helped shorten, uh, you know, shorten wars. Um, and, you know, that sort of very cryptanalysis-oriented activity, you know, alongside of intercepts. I think one of the things that we've, we've seen is just, you know, how few um, NSA secrets relate to how to break cryptography. And, you know, to the extent they have them, they, you know, it, it may be that the revelations have, you know, are only a, a little window and maybe they do know things. But one thing that we can be um, more confident in is that if they have um, insights into how to break, uh, you know, large scale systems that are out there, they're not very operationally significant to any of the programs that, that uh, have been revealed. And I, I think that's extraordinarily interesting from a technical point of view. I don't want to go down the line because I don't feel five to say something to say anything, but, but anyone else? In, in some ways, that, that was sort of the least surprising thing to me uh, as well, but most significant. I mean, I started hacking the Internet in 1974, and I know how important it is to do social engineering. And it, it's not too surprising, actually, that the NSA is doing mostly what you would think of as social things rather than the the hard technology of of breaking crypto i mean um i i've 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 built a version of our silent text um but i haven't really done implementation of crypto um in all my career up until last year and believe me it's really really hard and it's not surprising that the thing that i did on and off for 40 years because it was the easy way is 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 what they did i it, and the, the revelation that trust the math really is um, uh, uh, correct it, it was, 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 I thought, the most pertinent thing. I think one of the things that pleased me the most was um, uh, Tor sucks. <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the presentation, oh, that's the name, I'm not making this up, that's their name for it. It was a presentation by the NSA um, in which they describe how they try to understand um, Tor. And the thing that pleased me is, yes, apparently they have, mechanism, they have methods for getting at certain people occasionally, but even they say, in the general case, Tor works, and, it's, and it held up. And, and, and that it held up to, to, to them pleased me more than anything else. And, and maybe that's a lead-in for the next person. Chris had a, a yeah. So I, I, I'm not going to say what surprised me, but I will say what has, um, what has been difficult. Uh, journalists who are, who are working this beat and who have been publishing these stories have sought to try and maintain a very careful balance between publishing information that they think is newsworthy and relevant and, and reveals uh, abuse uh, of surveillance authorities and powers while still protecting the legitimate sources and methods of U.S. and their partner intelligence agencies. And I understand that that's a really difficult job. And, you know, I may not disagree or I may not agree with every decision they've made, but 
it's a really, really difficult decision uh, and, and process they're going through. And so I don't, I wouldn't want to have their job. But what I do want to emphasize is that there is a big difference of, of opinion between journalists and computer security experts in that the things that we need to see, the things that we want to see are the sources and methods that the journalists feel the need to keep um, secret, to maintain the secrecy of. Um, the, the names of the algorithms that NSA has broken or subverted, the names of the companies that NSA has colluded with to subvert the security of their products and to sabotage their products, those are the things that we need to know so that we can protect the public. Um, there's a fantastic and, and enlightening interaction between uh, Glenn Greenwald and Kevin Polson of Wired in the comments of a recent Reddit thread um, where Kevin and, and Glenn go back and forth discussing the Guardian's decision to redact the name of two um, chip manufacturers whose products were uh, identified um, but then redacted in, in uh, a document published by The Guardian recently, uh, chips that are used in commercial virtual private network uh, services. We would very much like to know which particular chips are backdoored or, in, in, or some other way broken so that we can protect people and make sure that they're not using those chips. But those are the things that journalists feel that they must protect. And so there's an uneasy back and forth between the technologists saying, please, for the love of God, identify the broken algorithm. Uh, and then th that information being redacted when those slides are made public. You know, actually, um, just on that on that same vein, I, I should say that it's it's not that I'm surprised by uh, almost anything that's happened as a technologist. I've been very aware of uh, things that have been going on thanks to people like uh, Mark Klein of AT&T for revealing Room 641A back in 2006. I mean that. To me, that's when I started getting a little bit, uh, well, paranoid. Um, and I should say that, you know, right now, I think the, I guess something that's slightly surprising, and as a technologist, we, we tend to talk about the internet sitting on the, uh, the backs of many turtles, one turtle underneath another turtle. It's all turtles all the way down, we like to joke, uh, as far as like the complexity and craziness of it. And so we're talking about now with the NSA crafting implants for routers and things to change your firmware, not only like, as you said, the, uh, the actual chips having backdoors in them, but they're actively creating implants for, you know, people's routers that go buy at Best Buy. You know, it's, you know, here I am, a technologist working on Firefox for five years uh, as a software engineer, and I can't figure out how to get any sense of privacy when I'm connected to my Comcast uh, connection at home. So I think that to me, that's where it got a little bit weird for me. I'm going to cycle back to that in a second because it is reasonably clear that NSA regards the browser as, as the uh, sort of uniquely vulnerable part of the, of the system. And so I'm interested in sort of, uh, interrogating that a little bit from a, a former Mozilla developer. But I, I want to turn to Karen because we mentioned Tor sucks, which if, if it, the NSA's view is that Tor sucks, um, you should, I suppose, at some level take that as a compliment as a security of the product, but we know that, that as of, I think it was 2006 or 2007, we saw documents showing uh, they had not had as much success as they might have liked in de-anonymizing Tor traffic, but they had a certain number of Tor nodes that they owned and they were looking to, uh, to control more. Um, I suppose, how confident are you in the continuing security or you know, the anonymity of Tor under that effort? And is there any way that you would change uh, anything about the functionality of Tor in response to 
that kind of attack? So I guess I, I would respond first with a, a sort of call to arms to the internet freedom community is that we need more nodes. So Tor development is based on the premise that we must think of worst case scenarios at all times. We are open source because you should not trust us, you should trust the code. You should be able to verify our claims independently. The routing system is based on the premise that uh, an adversary will try to control a large number of nodes in the network. So the way you connect to Tor is you get, you connect to directory servers, which have to reach consensus on where the relays are located. You randomly select three of those relays, though you will prefer ones that are further apart geographically. Uh, this is to get on different networks and to hop jurisdictions. Uh, and then you switch that circuit every 10 minutes or so. So that, that basic premise of, of the way Tor operates, I think, is, is still sound. Uh, we will probably be upgrading the cryptography involved in, in making the session keys between those relays and into hidden services, but we're fairly confident that the distributed trust model is something that is, uh, will continue to work and hopefully will be adopted by more technologies. I actually follow up on one point. The, um, one, one of the, the allegations made in one of the New York Times stories that came out, and I think it was actually one of Charlie Savage's stories about uh, NSA and encryption, is that even in what were open standards, uh, the NSA found ways to introduce fairly subtle uh, vulnerabilities uh, that, uh, that were eventually sort of discovered because the standards were open by, I think, Microsoft researchers. They said, wait a minute, if you had a certain sort of special number, um, you could... You could um, mind-numbing, but, but, but you, could, you could crack this uh, much, much faster. Um, and so it seems that even when the code is open, sometimes there are ways to insert vulnerabilities that are not obvious um, without a lot of scrutiny. Um, do you have any concern about whether there's influence of some kind on uh, even Tor's code uh, that, that is introducing hidden vulnerabilities? So open source, while actually a, a security property, is not a panacea. You not only have to have open code, but you have to have an established relationship with the academic community. Your contributors have to be enthusiastic and well-qualified. So Tor has an advantage because we've been around for 10 years. Uh, but in terms, we have enough eyes on the code. And one of the things that Roger Dingledine has said to the press in response to the NSA revelations is that if you look at the anonymity bibliography on the Freehaven page, in many cases, the academic papers are more technically rigorous than the slide decks that have been revealed. So that's, again, open source is not a panacea, but having a very active community that's willing to uh, be engaged in, in looking for those back doors is very important. Chris, you want to... Yeah, so since you brought up the NIST thing, I, th I think it's useful to sort of remind people, many people think that this is the first time that NSA has been accused of, um, of providing input to the development of cryptographic standards. Uh, NSA, um, in 1993, it was revealed that they had um, provided input, some significant input behind closed doors to uh, a, a cryptographic standard known as DSS, and that was only revealed after... Um, a civil liberties group in Washington, D.C. obtained documents through FOIA. Um, those changes apparently were not positive. But uh, later, um, 
NSA actually ap apparently uh, worked with IBM to increase the security of, the D of DES and encryption standard to protect against attacks that were not yet known to the public. Um, that was an example of NSA actually doing a good thing uh, in, in beefing up the security of an algorithm. A and I think what this points to is a problem that NSA has two hats. They have a defensive hat and an offensive hat. And when you interact with people from NSA, you never know which hat they're wearing or if they're wearing both hats at the same time. Um, and after the DES uh, incident, people felt like NSA might be a positive contributor to the cryptographic development process. I, I think a lot of people were really happy, even though NSA couldn't tell us about this new um, cryptographic uh, attack, which is called differential analysis. Um, they were really happy that NSA had provided that input. And I think many people now feel burned um, by what has, has come out, both burned by NSA and burned by NIST. And, and I should be clear, uh, there are a lot of really good people who work at NIST who are probably very unhappy uh, with what they've learned, um, who, who feel like they spend you know, eight, 10 hours a day working to make good standards and are, are very upset to see what, what has come out. Um, but now you know, what NSA has done has not only destroyed the reputation of NIST uh, and upset a lot of people, but it, it's mean that we can, it means that we can no longer um, treat NSA's input as, as a good faith contribution to this process. And maybe we should never have um, treated them that way, but in the past they did, they did make the internet more secure. And I think now we need to be really thinking about whether NSA can be considered a good faith stakeholder in, in, in internet security discussions and cybersecurity efforts. It's actually a, a good segue here because Tor is, uh, is of course a decentralized open source uh, um, a program w which leaves you with sort of limited ways to uh, kind of influence the Tor project itself to try and access anyone's communications. I mean, they could uh, you know, release modified code, but any kind of obvious backdoors would be pretty quickly detected. Um, there's lots of previous versions already out there. Uh, we have here a couple of representatives of companies, Spider Oak and Silent Circle, that provide um, secure communications, but in, a, in a, a less decentralized way where there is in a sense, a point of access for the government to go after. Uh, recently, we saw the company LavaBit that provides encrypted uh, email services and apparently provided such services to Ed Snowden, um, basically shut down rather than uh, essentially subvert their own security. It seems that in that case, the government had actually asked not just for one particular uh, user's information, but for, the, uh, but for the encryption keys that would let them eavesdrop on uh, the whole traffic stream uh, to their servers. Uh, Silent Circle, uh, shortly thereafter, and, and supposedly preemptively, um, shuttered down their, shut down their secure uh, email service, so the, the encrypted voice and text remain up. So um, I guess I want to primarily address this to uh, Jim and David. How do you sort of deal with the challenges of trying to build a secure system when you yourself may be ordered to undermine the very security you're trying to build? You know, yeah, yeah, that's a it, it, it's a it's a good question because uh, probably the most stressful day that I've spent in the last year since it, since being involved in Silent Circle was the day that LavaBit shut down. Um, I, I got a we have a, a little identifier on a, uh, that you can exchange with somebody that you're doing a secure uh, a call with a short. Uh, uh, a short authorization string, 
And you really only have to do that once ever in talking to somebody, and it's carried forward. But, you know, we do it moderately often. But the day that the CEO calls you and the first words out of his mouth are, the first word in my, in my SAS is, and I have to respond with the second one, and you go, you know, Mike's never said that to me before. Um, what's up? And within 10 hours, we had completely taken down our, our mail service and destroyed all of our customers' data. And that's hard. I mean, you look at it and you say, these people paid us for this service, and we're going to take the service away. And, well, we should let them know in advance. Well, if we let them know in advance, we've also let other people know in advance, and then it may become illegal to shut it down. And, you know, what, you know, what do we want to do here? And probably the thing that's made life the hardest um, out of all of these revelations is is the fact that something we knew was going to happen eventually. I mean, we started a, a, a cryptography company, a, a, a security company. We knew that there would be a fight eventually, that, that somebody would, would want us to put a backdoor, a, a, a Trojan horse in, you know, for law enforcement to be able to get in, and that someday we'd go before Congress and, and, and try to testify as to why the law that would force us shouldn't be passed or something. But to suddenly watch LavaBit go, whack, I'm going, to, I'm going to close a company that's been open for 10 years because I've been put in an untenable position, look at our own resources and go, hmm, we could be put in that position. <laughs> um, you know, to that, that, that's been the, really the hard thing. That, yeah, I mean, like... Uh... Their differentiator here is that, you know, like LavaBit, you guys were holding keys in escrow for people, correct? Oh, yes. In our email, we, were, we, had, we, had, we had keys yeah. because it was, we had not completed our own intended truly secure mail process, but some number of people really wanted a, a, an email. And this was as good pretty much as email was, you know, sort of state of the art, but not good enough. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, when it comes to a service like Spider Oak, for instance, the backup client, I mean, the keys are only on the computer that Spider Oak is running on. Right. The keys are never sent to Spider Oak. Uh, again, there's levels of trust here, and that's a whole different uh, uh, argument to have. But if the government came to us and said, well, we need you to, like, change your product, now that's a whole different story. I know that there was... Recently, a, a news article, probably someone in this room wrote about that. Um, I can't remember who it was, but they were saying, hey, does the government actually have the right to come to you and say, well, you have to change your source code so that we can get everybody's data? And I, that's, I understand that may still be an open question. I don't know. Uh, but in the, in the case of a system like many of Silent Circle's offerings and ours, you know, we don't have the keys. The only data we have is literally garbage. Right. I mean, that's else. the only protection that we, that's the protection we have. And the reason we shut down our email is our text, our, our phone, we don't have the keys. There's nothing to give them. Right. So, so I, I want to help everyone in this room understand the unique situation that these companies find themselves in and the unique position in the market that they occupy. So Google may not like the fact that they receive surveillance orders, but they do comply in certain circumstances. And Yahoo gets surveillance requests and they comply and Facebook gets surveillance requests and they comply. Um, and they may try and push back on them and they may push for transparency, but ultimately these companies have teams of lawyers who do nothing but respond to surveillance requests. And 
they're comfortable with their role in the surveillance state. They may not love it, um, but they are comfortable enough to employ full-time teams of lawyers and engineers to satisfy the, these requests. The only reason you use uh, a spider oak uh, over Dropbox is because of the security they offer. The only reason you use Silent Circle over Skype is because of the security they offer. Certainly, Skype is cheaper than Silent Circle, and certainly there are backup companies who offer services that are cheaper than Spider Oak. Uh, these companies only offer one feature above their competition, and that is security and privacy from all threats, whether it is the Chinese government, whether it is independent rogue hackers, and whether it is the US government. Uh, and to a certain extent, the US is a global leader in small businesses providing secure communication services. And when the US government comes to a company like LavaBit and compels them to hand over their encryption keys, that is a death sentence to that company. If they complied, their reputation would be destroyed, as was the, re the reputation of a previous company called, um, uh, what was the Canadian, uh, Hushmail, the Canadian company. They complied and their reputation was destroyed once their assistance was made public. Or they could ignore the request and refuse to comply and shut down the service, and then they are dead too. The US, uh, this US growing uh, uh, section of the economy of companies that provide secure communication services is under threat. We should want this part of the economy to grow. This is something where we are a global leader, where we have a cybersecurity advantage over everyone else. We should be doing everything in our power to protect these companies and to grow this market. But instead, NSA uh, and their friends at DOJ uh, have the ability to squash them before they are big enough to fight for themselves. There is no multi-million dollar lobbying association for secure communication services companies yet. Um, uh, and so these, these companies are in their infancy right now. They could be squashed, um, but we, we should want them to exist. We should want there to be services that journalists and lawyers and doctors can use to keep their communication secure because doctors and lawyers and journalists don't have the technical skill to set up their own secure email and set up their own secure voice services. They need companies to provide these services for them and no one is gonna use a service with a backdoor if they really care about their security. So I'd just like to, I'm not sure if I disagree or agree. Um, I mean, as a security technologist, I'm, I'm all for promoting a large and healthy security technology industry. Um, you know, even though, um, you know, uh, I think we haven't really had a great track record of figuring out how to make it economically important to us. Uh, it, I, I think the more important aspect of this is that the existence of trustworthy communications technology is vitally important to the global economy itself. Um, you know, in the 1990s, when the internet started to become important, we had this very distracting debate over key escrow, and that debate had the nice property, as, as bloody as it was, it was at least being conducted in the open. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, after a decade of, of debate, of public po very intense public policy debate between law enforcement, national security, industry, and, and public policy, the consensus was it is more important to enable secure communication for the good of the, the economy and society generally than it is to ensure you know, law enforcement and intelligence access under all circumstances. And you know, almost, you know, I, I, I don't want to say that this was the cause, but this was certainly 
a at one of the events that uh, led to the explosion in the importance of the network and the and the importance of communication as an engine of of commerce and and of how we do uh, our our activities in society today. So I think it, it it's it's a mistake to say, look, this is an industry that we uh, need to protect. That's true, but that's not the 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 largest social good. The largest social good or the largest danger that I see is that we stop trusting the infrastructure that we have uh, and uh, you know slip back you know because you know we've we've destroyed we've destroyed a lot of the face-to-face -face and paper um, uh, technologies and infrastructures that we had before. If we stop trusting the internet, we don't really have anything to replace it with. At the risk of, of, of being self-serving, uh, to, to, to bolster Chris's point, if you look back at the crypto wars, one of the really seminal events of that was Phil Zimmerman deciding to create his own um, uh, uh, new crypto system and instead of instantiating it in software and getting that software declared in munitions, publishing it as a book and then saying, go ahead, tell me that this is classified information and spending three years um, uh, uh, fighting the DOJ. Um, and, and yes, the reason it's self-serving is he's a founder of, of, of our company. So, uh, And John Callis, who's a founder of our company, was the um, uh, uh, chief scientist of, of P the PGP company that came out of it. But that, you know, the, 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 the small and not particularly successful original PGP company um, really was um, um, a, 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 a real actor in all of this. So the, the, so the small companies that, that are doing this, that, that have activists and technologists in them, um, you know, really have historically been at the forefront of this. So I don't know that I will beg for everybody's protection, but, but, but we certainly are uh, uh, playing, and it's, a, and it's an important role. Karen, did you want to get in there? So the, the frustrating and surprising thing about the, the recent discussions is that we thought we had these discussions before about weak standards. <laughs> we have gone through DES. We have gone through EFF and Deep Cracked. We have gone through all of these crypto wars. We have gone through both the technological and moral implications of introducing backdoors into systems. And it's not just the, the small nonprofit or boutique firm crypto projects. It, it's the infrastructure. And we at Tor get the backdoor question, both from people uh, in law enforcement who run up against Tor because it works, and that's frustrating for some law enforcement. Uh, Tor can also be used to protect law enforcement officers in the field who are going up against real threats to the security of ordinary citizens. Uh, and we get this question from people who are uncomfortable with the fact that we take 60% of our funding from the U.S. government, um, often on behalf of people uh, in countries where surveillance and censorship are the difference between a robust civil society and having most of the people who want uh, freedom and the things that we take for granted, uh, they go to jail because of those aims. So the, the surprising thing is that we thought we had solved the question that a vulnerability in an otherwise secure system is a gap in your defenses regardless of the intent. Backdoors are just bad ideas.
because, among other things, criminals always have better options than law-abiding citizens. If you're willing to impersonate somebody or steal access, whether that's a laptop or somebody's cell phone, you don't need any of these protections in law. You don't need uh, you know, a whistleblower to, to prompt a public dialogue. And, and that's, that's the, the technological things, not that much of a surprise. Again, we think in worst case scenarios, but the fact that all of this has happened before and it'll all happen again, yeah. including now. The Battlestar Galactica principle. Um, I, let me actually just leapfrog on that and maybe primarily direct this to uh, David and, uh, and Matt. Um, to what extent is it realistic to worry about the, the type of vulnerabilities that have been discussed are exploitable without specialized? That is to say, how vulnerable are the vulnerabilities if you don't have the sort of special knowledge NSA had when creating the vulnerability? Right. Yeah. So I think that's that's that gets at something that's really been missing from the public debate that we've been having, which is that the NSA, uh, which is getting a lot of attention, um, is not the only threat that one has to worry about. You know, NSA abuses are certainly something to be concerned with, but you know, to a large extent. Um, much of what we've been seeing in these revelations, which are admittedly only a window, and we don't know how narrow this window is, um, are, uh, are uh, the NSA is exploiting things that weaken, exploiting and introducing things that weaken the infrastructure generally against attacks by others. Um, you know, the um, People's Liberation Army uh, has a, a pretty good uh, version of the NSA. Um, and, you know, I'm worried about them, too. And many of the things that we're seeing make it a lot easier for them. And, you know, uh, criminals are only a little bit behind that. David? Yeah, I mean, you know, you won't even know you're being man in the middle when governments and private companies can just go online and buy man in the middle devices. That if you have the private key for the SSL, you know, you're, the person that is man in the middle, you you think you're on Google writing an email to your grandmother, but in reality, it's the guy in the middle has all of that information, mm. and you have no idea that you're not at Google. So there's a there's yeah, you, you just have no idea. There's again, it's once you start going down the rabbit hole, you get you get all the way down to like, well, do you trust DNS, you know, and the domain name system, and it's yeah, very difficult. Question. Actually, follow up. So, in your case, even if they could have ordered you to hand over your, uh, you know, your SSL keys so they could pick up the session traffic, that wouldn't help. That uploading the data is already encrypted. In the case of Spider Oak, um, and then the question is, as you suggested, whether they could get you to re-engineer the software. And so, the context for this is that for a couple of years, the FBI has been hollering that all these technologies um, will cause them to go dark, so they can't spy on bad guys. Um, and so, they want legislation comparable to what already exists for telephone companies. Um, and ISPs to say basically you have to build your system um, wiretap ready so that it is sort of capable of law enforcement access from, from the ground up. And so far there's been resistance to applying that same requirement to software makers. Um, but it does appear from, I think you were referencing probably Spencer Ackerman's article for The Guardian, that at least in the case of Skype, um, some engineering decisions may have been made to render what had previously been extremely hard intercepting the video from a Skype conversation much easier. Um, and so now NSA is delighted that they are getting very clear pictures from, um, from that. Um, is there any 
I suppose, is there any way to sort of prevent that if you're, if you're making a closed source product from, from, from being ordered to, uh, let's say, redesign it so after the new update, it, um, it sends all the keys in to, to NSA as part of the process? <clears throat> I'm sorry, what was the exact so I question? I mean, so in, in a case like, so if you're asked, I mean, is, is there a defense against that demand to re-engineer? Oh, I, you know, that's, to me, that's a legal question, really. I mean, I, like, obviously, we would tell anyone, you know, go pound sand, you know. Right. Uh, but again, that's more of a legal question than anything, I think, at this point. Is there a design choice you can make that would make it hard to do that invisibly? And is that, I mean, is this something, is there, are there design questions you are treating differently now um, in, in light of? I mean, I, th I think there are technical things you can do, right? So there, there's a competitor to Tor called, called JAP. It's the J Java Anonymous Proxy. It's made by uh, a group of German researchers. And um, maybe six or eight years ago, the German government passed a new anti-terrorism law uh, and went to the developers of this Java Anonymous Proxy and asked them to put in a, a surveillance backdoor. So this is very similar to Tor. It's, a, it's an anonymizing network technology and it's open source. It has an open source client and an open source server. And the researchers who made this were German citizens and they had to comply with German law. And so they notified the operators of the, of the JAP um, network that they needed a poorly named JAP network that, um, that they needed to add this backdoor. And so they did so. Um, they told all the server operators, you guys need to update to the new version. And when the server operators looked at the new source code, they saw a comment on you know, line 330 saying, backdoor is here. <laughs> um, and it, it, I mean, it's, it's comical, but it turns out that compelling open source products to insert backdoors that will stay covert is, is difficult. Now, maybe you can bribe an engineer um, and, you know, and sneak in a backdoor that isn't obviously labeled but it's difficult to force an open source project, uh, particularly one as high profile as Tor with as many paranoid users who are looking at every single change in the code. Um, you know, I think we need to be moving to uh, a, a place where we are asking ourselves whether the clients that we are using should be closed source. Um, obviously, we want companies who are operating these services to have a profitable business model so they can stay in business and keep offering good services, but I really do think we need to be thinking about whether the code that touches our passwords and keys and our private data, whether that should be closed source, because we don't want to have a situation where the companies can be easily forced into giving us a malicious update. By all means, you know, the company should offer uh, you know, a, a robust service and do great stuff on the back end, but anything that touches our private data, I think, should be as transparent as possible to protect against these kinds of, of compelled modifications. So anybody who's been part of a discussion on the Stanford University Liberation Technology uh, mailing list about changes to open source projects knows that it's not an easy proposition to make major changes to a project without a lot of discussion, to use a generous term, about it. Uh, that being said, the technology is not the only piece. I mean, technologies like Tor and other privacy enhancing and censorship busting technologies exist to give people the tools that they need to make the public aware of abuses of power. So the difference between the ability of law enforcement to do surveillance being something that reassures the average citizen and something that's frightening is posing questions such as, what checks and balances exist so that when a law enforcement officer uses those powers to stalk a former intimate partner 
and perhaps target them for violence. Is that going to be something that is noticed in time? What systems exist to notify people and people within those organizations of what's happening? What whistleblower protections exist for people who are raising concerns about that? And from the technology community also, when you reveal a vulnerability in a system, sometimes the response of companies and governments is to try to put you in jail. And in some cases, like the Orenheimer AT&T case, these are very unpleasant people who maybe should be locked away for other reasons, but not for disclosing easily discoverable vulnerabilities in products. So policy is still a huge part of this debate. Actually, and in, in, in just as a, a function of the principle that, that uh, the robustness of the system depends on the number of different eyes on it, I, I realize looking at the audience that there are quite a few people here who are uh, technically more sophisticated than I am and who are, again, therefore perhaps likely to come up with uh, questions I would not. So um, why don't we just take the last 10 minutes and turn to uh, the audience for questions. Uh, I see, well, right here in front. This may be a quick question. Is there any secure email out there today? And if not, uh, what are the prospects for a secure email? No. <laughs> um, you can secure the content of the email, but you can't secure the metadata. And so much of what you would want to secure is the metadata. And, it, and, it, and it's so essential that it be open in order for the, the, the email to be passed. I mean, we, we created the internet based on, on what we knew, the ARPANET and all the other nets that came before it. And <clears throat> we just throw our mail out into the ether and somebody looks at it and says, oh, it should go that way. And then he looks at it, oh, it should go that way. And eventually it gets to the person. But that only works if everybody can look at the envelope and, and, and can record which direction it's already been. And so that means you have to have dates and times and who it goes to, et cetera. And it turns out that that's all really very important um, uh, information. And you can't secure that in the current system. Um, there are people who are working on, and I mean, we at Silent Circle have said, we always intend to have a secure email someday. But we looked at that and said, we know how big a problem that is. We can do secure voice. We can do secure text today and establish ourselves as a, as, as a going concern before we do email. There are others who want to do it as well, but no, there isn't anything today. And I just want to emphasize the, the, how perverse it is that the, um, the, with metadata, it's the communication information that is the toughest to hide, yet gets the least protection under the law. I mean, it, it's really, really messed up. You, you can encrypt the contents of your communications, but it's, it, it's so difficult to hide the metadata, particularly um, mobile location data, which I think arguably is content, not metadata anyway, but the laws of physics don't really let you hide your location information from the phone company offering you service. Um, you have to go and live in a cave to hide metadata. Um, and so the government enjoys both a technical advantage there and a legal advantage. Uh, in terms of the specifics of your question, the, the barriers to secure email are largely usability ones. Um, key distribution is a uh, unsolved problem, uh, at least usable key distribution. Um, 
yes, secure email exists that I can use and that others on this panel can use and that some journalists are learning to use, but uh, it has been exceptionally painful for those journalists to learn to use those secure email systems, and they probably still don't like using them. Um, and there does not exist right now a secure email service that is easy enough for your friends and family to use. Um, and, and that's a problem. And, and I think LavaBit was trying to strike a balance between usability and security. And I think Silent Circle's initial email offering was also an attempt. You know, there were trade-offs that were made to make it so that it worked easy enough for the average user, but that meant that it was more vulnerable to coerced government surveillance requests. I just want to chime in real quick. Some future technology that's just coming into the Ford right now is WebRTC. It's peer-to-peer from the beginning. That Some of these new things that are going to change the way that you can communicate online, it's, it's not all interoperable yet. The standards aren't quite uh, ironed out, um, but they have like system crypto as the base of the communication channel. And it is a peer-to-peer thing. So it's your browser talking to another person's browser. Whether or not the browser is actually a secure mechanism is another question, a huge question, but uh, that's something you can look into. Uh, let's see. Well, my colleague, John Mueller. Uh, following up on uh, something that Chris said, would there be a market for the following business? <clears throat> First of all, we will provide you at a premium with phone service. Uh, second, we will destroy all your records after you've paid your bill. Three, um, if the government comes to us with a legitimate focused subpoena, we will comply. And four, if they come at us and want our, all our data, we will go out of business. We won't be able to tell you about it. Uh, but that, you can take that as a costly signal of what has happened. I, mean, I don't think it, I don't know if you could even operate that service legally right now because we actually have a data retention law in the United States. The FCC requires telephone companies to keep 18 months worth of telephone records. They, they used to keep less, and in 1985, the FCC expanded the retention requirements at the request of, DA, uh, of DOJ. Um, to, if, to operate a common carrier telephone service, you have to comply with FCC rules, and you have to... Uh, keep the records. Now, there's a debate to be had about what kind of records need to be kept, particularly if you are offering an all-you-can-eat plan. So if you're paying $40 a month, maybe the phone company only needs to keep records of the fact that you paid 40 bucks. Maybe they don't need to keep records of every call you make. But right now, the FCC does require that carriers keep billing records for 18 months. And it, it depends on what you want to do with such a uh, system. Because there should be a distinction when offering services between confidentiality and anonymity. If you have information that can be, uh, you can be bribed, hacked, or compelled legally to give up, then your users should factor that into their behavior on whether or not to use such service and their behavior while using such service. Um, there. Uh, just hang on, wait for the microphone. Uh, a year and a half ago, I was looking for an alternative to Dropbox and found Spider Oak, and I've been using it for a year and a half. And I picked it because I thought it would be more secure, and I thought maybe I was being a little paranoid, but um, I guess I wasn't. And it works great. I'll just put in a plug, a plug for Spider Oak. Um, haven't had any problems for a year and a half. Um, 
a general question for the panel, implications for internet governance and the uh, commercial fortunes of U.S. companies uh, trying to attract international business? I guess that's sort of most obviously uh, the two of you. You know, it's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I have a lot of colleagues in Europe um, that are building startups. And for a long time, they were all looking for jobs in the U.S. Um, a, they couldn't find anyone in Silicon Valley that was interested in privacy. Because for what, for what it's worth, Silicon Valley's money is your personal information. That is their currency. Um, so <laughs> when all of this stuff dropped in June uh, with Snowden's revelations, I mean, all of them found VC money in Europe with kind of like a, oh, my God, you know, uh, you guys are operating in the United States. Are you sure you don't want to just come and start a company over here uh, with us in Norway or, you know, us in Switzerland or wherever, and you know it's it's a tough question. It's you know I don't know how it's going to play out, but uh, you know you're just going to have to build systems in the U.S. that are like like you're doing and what we're doing is we don't have the keys, we don't have the data, we have garbage. We can't we can't help the government. I mean there there is um there's a way forward for U.S. companies for U.S. cloud computing companies who want to salvage their reputations and um, salvage their market share in Europe and elsewhere, and that is. Um, a field of math called cloud cryptography. They're, so these com these companies offer a variant on that, but they're, they're actually are, are mathematical protocols that let you upload your data to the cloud. The company operating that server doesn't know what you've uploaded. They can do searches on it for you, so they can search for a particular email, give it back to you. They don't know what they searched for, and they don't know what they found. It sounds like magic, because really it is. Um, <laughs> I'm not the world's best cryptographer. I'm, I'm not a cryptographer at all, but... Um, U.S. researchers are actually at the leading edge of cloud cryptography. And in fact, Microsoft probably has more cloud crypto experts than any other company. If Microsoft is smart, they'll realize that this is a competitive advantage and that they can use this to sell their services uh, abroad. I mean, in theory, with cloud crypto, you can put your data on a server in China and not have to worry about it because the company operating the server and the government that can coerce the company cannot get anything of value. It's not as efficient as the current method of trusting the company to not look at the data, but maybe we're willing to put up with that inefficiency in exchange for actual verifiable trust rather than, you know, prey and trust. Since we actually have a, a cryptographer, is there a, a, are you equally sanguine? Um, well, I mean, I think one of the things that I'd like to kind of add an asterisk to it was from the very beginning of the panel when the phrase trust the math um, um, was was used you know as, as not quite a mathematician but as somebody who at least you know chats with mathematicians from time to time um, you know the, a lot of what you're trusting isn't really doesn't quite deserve to be called math um, you know at the root of a lot of what we trust um, we don't have strong proofs of security what we have is sort of consensus that it doesn't uh, um, fall to certain classes of attacks, but you know it is possible that there will be some mathematical insight that will cause all known cryptography to collapse. That said, that's an extraordinarily um, unlikely um, future event. Um, that uh, you know, I don't think anybody really seriously believes is going to happen. But you know, I think I'm legally obligated to add that disclaimer. And Actually, uh, let's do one, a very last one uh, over here. One sec for the mic. 
So with regard to U.S. enterprises and uh, also the need that, that uh, you know, U.S. citizens might have for, for secure communications, obviously there are some products that both of you provide with uh, uh, the term that you use where you, you, you essentially you're not keeping the data. But, you, but uh, um, should we be looking abroad for certain things as well and also the implications for either startup companies or those uh, like yourselves op, uh, working in, in, in existing companies that offer products do you see people structuring, you know, elements of their business abroad to protect, um, or is, is that, does that offer no, uh, you know, uh, answer as well, or even potential answer? Um, we're, we're actually a, a global company. We have developers, um, um, you know, in, in Germany and Latvia and Greece and, and, and so forth. And, 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 and technically I suspect we're not actually a U.S. company, even though most of us are Americans. <laughs> Um, if you if you trace the finances uh, and our servers are in Canada and, and, and soon to be in Switzerland. Um, so we're. I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage to say whether or not you should go with a U.S. company or not. Um, most of us are from the U.S. We were founded by uh, um, a bunch of Americans and um, um, Navy SEALs and the like. Um, but no, I. We have problems here. Um, the NSA is, 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 is tarnishing a lot of reputations, but I'm not sure that I um, distrust them more than I do, oh, say the Chinese or um, anybody in Eastern Europe where as the governments collapsed and they had these um, uh, uh, secret police organizations, they turned into the mafia the, of that area. And, and you now have uh, criminal organizations of the, of the caliber of the KGB. Um, I don't know that even though we have a few problems in this country, that we have the worst problems. We have problems that are bad enough that we as Americans should really be getting them fixed. They have no business being here. But that doesn't really mean that we're worse off than anybody else. So I don't think um, that, that, that actually um, uh, looking overseas is, is as important as it might be. This, I say, while saying, and we're putting our servers in Switzerland. <laughs> the, 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 the past is another country, they say. We just have to hope the future is not another country, uh, and it's China. Uh, thank you again. Uh, thank our panelists, please, and we'll uh, change it up for our final panel in a minute. Mm -hmm.